This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Doctor's Kitchen. Recipes, health, lifestyle. That's where we are now, and it's all falling apart. And the reason that was people love the simplistic approach is you can then whack it on the label and say, free from that, low in that, buy it, it's healthy. It doesn't matter what other crap is in it. Um it will sell more to the gullible public who, you know, like doctors, are very poorly educated about what they're eating. Welcome to the Doctor's Kitchen podcast. The show about food, lifestyle, medicine, and how to improve your health today. I'm Dr. Rupi, your host. I'm a medical doctor. I study nutrition and I'm a firm believer in the power of food and lifestyle as medicine. Join me and my expert guests where we discuss the multiple determinants of what allows you to lead your best life. Is everything we have been told about nutrition potentially wrong? And have we questioned prevailing dietary dogma enough? Are we asking the right questions in nutrition science? And if not, how do we rectify it? Professor Tim Spector, Professor of Genetic Epidemiology at King's College London and Honorary Consultant Physician at Guy's and St. Tommy's Hospital is my guest this week and we dive into these questions and a whole lot more. He is the lead researcher behind the world's biggest citizen science health project, the COVID Symptom Study App. This free tool has been used by more than 4 million people in the UK, US and Sweden and the app has also identified new symptoms of disease and risk factors as well as monitoring progress to warn health authorities. He's also published four popular books, including The Best-Selling Diet Myth, which I absolutely love, and more recently, Spoon-Fed. And I think it is absolutely fantastic, and that forms the basis of our discussion today. On the show, we chat about why the calorie-in, calorie-out dogma is entirely flawed, and I I uh, honestly, this is one of the commonest questions I get asked, and it's quite frustrating that people still rely on a calorie in, calorie out paradigm. Why salt may not be the prime suspect, uh, quite a controversial area, but something I think warrants a lot more attention, as Tim has given. The approach to pesticides that we should take, and this is something that we've discussed on a, an, another podcast 
um, with, a, with a farmer from Chile. So if you're interested in that, I would definitely take a, a listen to that podcast episode as well. Artificially sweetened beverages, practical sol- suggestions on how to live healthier and what the future of personalized nutrition could hold. Like I said, Spoonfed, fantastic book. Definitely go check it out. The links of which are on the podcast show notes page. And I'd encourage you, if you are interested, to read the Predict 2 study. It's one that looked at dietary um, differences and responses of the individual to different diets. It's a fascinating read, something that was published in Nature in 2020, the link to which I will make sure I put on the podcast show notes. Make sure you join up to the site, the mailing, mailing list, <laughs> the mailing list, where we give evidence-based recipes every single week and we focus on the quality of food rather than the macronutrient composition of food something that we discuss in today's podcast episode i hope you enjoy it and i will summarize our discussion at the end I wanted to first introduce you to the listeners um, who who may not know about your background. Um, what was your experience in medicine? What's your specialty, and 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 what led you to nutrition in the, in the first place? Okay, sounds an easy question, but it's a, it's a very long answer. Um, so <laughs> I'll try and keep it short. So, um, yeah, I, I I trained in medicine and. I always had an interest in research and I got interested in epidemiology very early on uh, as a medical student. Um, But I became a physician and took a year out to do a master's in epidemiology at the London School of Hygiene and uh, eventually then chose a a specialty of rheumatology, uh, mainly because it it didn't involve many nights. And uh, my consultant said, uh, it's a great specialty to be in, Tim. In six weeks, you can learn it all, and the rest is just psychology with a patient. Uh, so, I, so that that appeal, that sort of uh, self-deprecating side of the specialty, as opposed to cardiology and uh, all these other pretentious areas that um, told you how incredibly difficult it was. So, uh, I became a consultant rheumatologist, uh, doing as much research as I could. Um, and uh, I set up various uh, population studies, one in East London, a place called Chingford. And then um, soon after, I, uh, and just as I got my consultant job at St. Thomas's, I uh, had set up the twin, uh, this big twin study, of, uh, which was to become the UK's biggest uh, twin study of adults. And been running that ever since for the last, you know, over 25 years. Uh, which allowed me to then, after about seven years, slowly switch over from the unit from NHS to university, and then I studied twins for a while. Uh, well, I still study twins, but I was interested in the genetics, nature v nurture, uh, which was very novel at the time because everyone said it was all due to aging and that wasn't anything to do with your genes. So we disproved a lot of myths that way. Um, but I guess about Ten years ago, I started being more interested in why identical twins were different and what the environmental factors were and why would identical clones get different diseases, which they often do, and die at different times. And that led me towards the microbiome. And 
the fact that identical twins often have very different microbes. Uh, and that led me to really relook at nutrition. And um, every time I write a book, I, I, I managed to get a sabbatical and just immerse myself in the literature in a very nice place, usually, you know, sunny Barcelona or somewhere like that. Um, well, I was just free really to look at a whole the subject again with fresh eyes and retrain myself to be an expert. So I, I've reinvented myself many times um, as a doctor. And so it's very hard to know what I am, whether I'm a, some people call me a geneticist because I, I had to teach myself that when I did the twins and we did all kinds of gene discoveries. Um, genetic epidemiologist. Uh, and now, you know, I've sort of become a gut health expert and nutritionist. And it's, there's always a bit of um, difficulty when you first move into a subject because people don't like, uh, uh, you know, people who aren't insiders coming in and, um, and, and working on it. But um, after a few years, they've forgotten and uh, you just keep moving on. So that's, that's where I am. Yeah. So, so I'm really still fascinated Although I have a short attention span, I think there's so much exciting work to be done in nutrition and gut health that um, I, I'm not planning on changing any time soon. I think it's a really nice sort of way to um, develop your career as a, a medical professional by going through different specialties and just teasing out where your interests lie. And I think a lot of people would love particularly those in the medical profession, to almost be like a chameleon, a jack of all trades by trying their hand, in your case, at rheumatology, epidemiology, your research, genomics, and now being led to nutrition. I think that's a really nice way of sort of planning out your career, even though I'm not too sure if that was your intention. It's much harder to do it now for someone junior than it was for yes. me, than it was for me. Everything's now planned and you've got, you go on these long rotations and you can't get off them and... You know, it's like people just don't like the idea that you uh, might change. And I think it's completely counterintuitive because more than ever, we need multidisciplinary people who can think across, you know, different areas and bring expertise from one to another. And we simply don't have the, the system in place, really, unless you're really brave. So, you know, I would still urge people to be brave, but uh, they've got to, you know, they got to take some risks uh, and, you know, you know, and you've got to be thick skin because, you know, I was told, what are, what are you doing at this conference? You know, you're not, a, mm. I don't know, you're not a geneticist in obesity or what are you doing this conference? You're not a, you know, you're not doing the genetics of psychology or, um, you know, and then it, the same with nutrition and the microbiome. I mean, you have to learn the new language and you have to feel stupid for a bit until you uh, get it. But it's, I think more and more people should do it. And definitely that, that's the only real way medicine's going to move forward, I think. Absolutely, yeah. I think you've got to be comfortable being junior and whenever you try something new. I mean, I'm constantly being uh, told to stay in my lane as a general practitioner, going to emergency medicine, doing nutrition, you know, learning about the microbiota and, and its impact on various uh, parts of our health. I think it's, it's definitely the mindset of someone... Um, uh, who's new to nutrition and wants to learn more, you're just going to be comfortable being the stupid person in the audience. Yeah, and I think I was, I was helped because early in my training, I, I did a European exchange and I um, went for a year to Brussels. And I, I could speak French enough to order a meal in a restaurant. But when I was given sort of 15 patients to look after on day one, 
uh, it was the deep end. And so for three months, three months, I, w- I was treated like an idiot. And um, so, so I think maybe that, that hardened me up uh, for later life. But I, yeah. I didn't actually mind because it was great. And, you know, I now speak fluent French and uh, it was, you know, a great experience. And I think everyone's just got to go through that, realize you can come out the other end uh, a stronger, better person, as long as you don't mind, you know, uh, stupid people saying you're stupid, which, um, <laughs> but I, I guess a lot of foreigners get that in different countries as well. But um, I think it makes you tougher. Yeah, definitely. I want to talk about um, the differences between your, the, the book I first uh, came across with you, even though you've written for um, The Diet Myth, and what the difference is between The Diet Myth and Spoon Fed. And, and, and if there's been any change in your thinking around nutrition in that time period, I think, I think it was about five years between the two books. Yes. Um, well, as you know, I mean, you, you write books, it, they, they take a long time to, uh, from conception to birth. Um, and so, uh, you know, nearly as soon as you've sort of ones on the shelves, you, you've, you've got to start thinking about the next because it takes so long. Um, yeah. uh, but uh, it's interesting because I, I was asked to, um, I'm writing a new edition of The Diet Myth, uh, which is going to come out in the end of the year, actually. Uh, mm. And so I had to I reread it and said, well, what would I change? You know, what's, what's changed? Because I expected to rewrite quite a lot. And um, interestingly, um, most of the ideas that I've put in there, some of them speculative, um, I did... Most of them have stood the test of time and actually got stronger. I don't think any of them have turned out to be the bullshit that um, a lot of the naysayers said, you know, uh, a lot of my colleagues said, oh, you know, microbiome, it's just uh, one of those fads. No one will have heard of it, you know, in five years' time. Don't give these guys a grant. You know, it's a waste of time. Uh, Generally because they weren't doing it and uh, they didn't understand it. But... Often these people in the UK are in a position of power and authority and so could squash that whole field. Um, but looking at it again, um, really, I, I didn't have to make any fundamental changes to it at all. It just added more evidence building on what we'd found. Um, and I think it's just got stronger and stronger, really, about the the importance of the gut microbiome in our health and more and more people are now measuring it. It doesn't seem as weird uh, to talk about kefir and kombucha as it was uh, five years ago. Uh, yeah. It's now in you know most supermarkets, and people are now seeing it, and that's great. Um, and I think the you know people are, have moved beyond it just being about probiotics, and do understand gut health much better. So. Um, the the bits that have perhaps changed are the personalization side of things. So yeah. I think we've got better at measuring the microbiome and we realize that actually we're still scraping the surface in terms of the function of these bugs. And yeah, we got a few of these, uh, you know, we've got to be excited about particular species five years ago and some mm-hmm. of those haven't panned out. Um, so things like the Christensenella story, um, which was the bug that um, we wrote the paper on in Cell, that you can um, 
when you put it into mice, you could you know keep them thin. Um, mm. it, it looks like when you really deeply sequenced that bug, it was probably a different strain than the one we thought it was, and mm. it might be a, a group of bugs acting together rather than one on its own. So in a way, the area has just got more complex rather than sort of uh, simple. But it didn't mean it was wrong. It was just uh, we were sort of just scraping off that first layer of paint on the door. Um, I think that that's the way I, I would see it. So, yeah, I, I, I'm pleasantly surprised compared to some other fields I've dabbled in, like epigenetics and um, uh, you know other genetic fields, about how much has stood the test of time. Um, so Spoonfed really focuses more on the personalised uh, nutrition, the fact of how unique we are, which I don't think we really knew five years ago. Um, and also, I think it, it brings in, uh, in discussing a lot of these, these food myths, I think that the sort of element wasn't discussed before is about how that, that myth evolved uh, and the influence of both, you know, uh, nutrition, the nutrition world itself, the academics and the food industry and the grant funders. And I think, uh, and of course, you know, the big advertising companies above it all. Um, mm. I think that was the sort of uh, new bits. Uh, plus, you know, some bits of medicine are changing. And so I wrote a, a, a chapter on salt. And I'd looked at salt five years ago, thinking, ah, I wonder if this is really real. Uh, but because uh, I, I, I had some, when I was ill, I, I, my blood pressure shot up and I did try going off salt. And I thought, yeah, you know, but there was nothing really I could say that was wrong about the data, but now I could. So, you know, that's, that is the good thing about medicine is that if you look hard enough in certain areas, people are happy to do the papers to uh, question, uh, you know, previous research because that, but that's really because it's all not, it wasn't a nutrition led study. It was all about, it was about the cardiologists and the uh, renal physicians and the diabetologists worrying about giving too little salt to their patients and them getting worse. Yeah, yeah. Well, I was going to say, yeah, th this book is um, particularly brave, I would say, because you're going systematically going through different nutrition sort of dogmas that are ingrained into everyone's head, saturated fat, calorie counting, um, even sugar. Um, and salt, I, I found, was a particularly interesting chapter because you talked about the unnecessary aspect on one aspect of diet rather than looking at overall diet quality, which I, I, I imagine is a proxy for the entire book, really. I mean, that, that's the overall arch, overarching message I get is that it's about overall diets, about looking at it a holistic way rather than just specific aspects of food. Um, what was sort of the trigger for you to think about, okay, salt isn't as dangerous as we've been led to believe? Um, and, and how would you explain that uh, to sort of the, the wider population that, you know, is constantly obsessed with uh, salt reduction in, in, in what they eat? Well, there, there are a number of sort of key events that made me change my mind. And I guess um, the first was the realisation that all these studies talk about average levels um, and whether that's significant or not. So there's this this big difference between how it affects a population and how it affects you. So I, I took the personal approach because, uh, as I said, I was trying it myself. 
uh, and I couldn't notice any difference uh, with me taking my own blood pressure, you know, having sort of two or three weeks of really disgusting food. Um, and uh, so I, uh, and I thought, well, is it really worth it? Then I started looking at it and, and, it, and it turned out that if you're, you know, for the average person who's not of African origin, uh, doesn't have any other major risk factors, you know, it's going to change it by one to two millimeters. Okay, so um, to go through uh, life, uh, never going to a restaurant and having all your food tasteless and uh, bland uh, for the sake of, uh, you know, less than, you know, 1% improvement in your blood pressure, um, which, you know, was trivial compared to the, you know, tablets, um, seemed me uh, not worth it. And then I looked at the other data and it, there was this new stuff coming out um, from uh, some of the developing countries that actually, you know, this association with salt didn't hold at all. And there was other data from patients with diabetes showing that people on salt-restricted diets were actually getting more heart disease and more kidney disease. Uh, so it was actually harmful to them. So the whole thing really, to me, suddenly fell apart uh, once you realised, A, how little any one individual gets out of it, unless you are perhaps in, you know, there's this one in 10, one in 20 people that is quite sensitive to salt. Um, most people are, are suffering without much gain. And I think that was the sort of key key point there. And it, it's an interesting one, you know, because I was brought up in epidemiology by a famous epidemiologist called Jeffrey Rose, who said the whole point of public health is to shift that curve slightly. Um, yeah. Which... You can understand uh, if it doesn't, uh, you know, affect your life. Uh, but to my, you know, anyone who likes food um, will know that salt is crucial. It's very hard to cook good meals with zero salt. And it's, it's very hard to enjoy life never going to a restaurant or eating out where yeah. the salt is already added to your, the food by the chef. Um, yeah. <laughs> So, so these things start. You start to weigh up these these ideas. This dogma, right? Salt is bad, and then also you know, everyone knows that it's not about the salt you add to your food. It's generally people who have really high, high salt intakes are eating low quality, uh, ultra processed food that you know in ready meals, etc., and frozen pizzas, and that's the problem, not the salt. Yeah, yeah. To contextualize it for for people, I I guess you know in that chapter you talk about the issue, the main issue with salt intake being its inclusion in ultra processed foods, which kind of litters throughout the whole book as the one of the biggest issues that we have to contend with. Um, rather than okay, it's okay to sprinkle salt all over your, uh, you know, masses of meat that you eat every single day and everything else. I think you know it really pertains to the entire diet quality rather than just the salt itself. Is that fair to say? Yeah, well, exactly. It's, it's a, an example, and there are many in the book, of how in the past, because we didn't really understand nutrition, we've picked on one ingredient, and that has been uh, the deadly one. And then it's, nice, it's a nice simple story then to say we've got one villain, uh, whether it doesn't matter whether it's gluten, whether it's, uh, I think, you know, uh, lectin, whether it's... Um, uh, uh, it's uh, saturated fat, 
um, you know, whether it's uh, summing in eggs or, you know, you, you name it, it, it's some particular chemical or E number. Uh, mm. And you know, we forget that food is now made up of 26,000 chemicals at least. And so every time we eat, you know, just a carrot, we're eating hundreds of different chemicals that are mixing mm. with uh, our saliva that has hundreds of chemicals and then our microbes that produce, you know, tens of thousands of chemicals that mix with our uh, 20,000 genes. And, you know, it, it is not something that can be reduced down to, you know, one thing that is the problem with our diet. And that that yeah. and that's where we are now, and it's all falling apart. And the reason that was, people love the simplistic approach is you can then whack it on the label and say free from that, low in that, buy it, it's healthy. And it doesn't matter what other crap is in it, um, it will sell more to the gullible public who, are, you know, like doctors, are very poorly educated about what they're eating. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and I think. Um... Uh, on the subject that we are quite binary people, uh, I feel like we just like to have everything simplified, whereas nutrition is incredibly complex, as you just described, with a number of different chemicals, a number of different pathways, a simple, humble carrot can influence uh, on its ingestion. And on the subject of chemicals, um, you talked about uh, artificial sweeteners in one of your chapters, which I was really interested in because uh, I'm constantly asked about the safety of artificial sweeteners, the impact on the gut microbiota, and whether we should be accepting of these uh, novel chemicals in our food system. What are your thoughts on that? My thoughts uh, are I, I've always been suspicious of um, the artificial sweeteners. Well, not always, actually. I, I used to drink. Uh, Diet Cokes and Diet Pepsis um, 10 years ago, um, thinking they were much better for me. And they undoubtedly are better for your teeth. Okay, so if you've got some young kids addicted to this stuff and you can't get them off, at least you'll stop their teeth falling out if you switch them over. So that definitely something better. But uh, looking at all the trials in kids and adults where they switch people from regular um these regular sodas to uh, diet drinks, uh, all the meta-analyses show no benefit in terms of weight loss or diabetes. Mm. So that is weird, right? And the average, person, average kid or adult was, was swapping two cans a day. So each can, I don't know, has 130 calories or something. So we're talking 260 calories difference and no observable difference in weight or sugar in about 20 studies summarized. So it's clearly, uh, it's not neutral. You know, if it was just water, uh, you'd expect some benefit. And of course, they never really tested against water. None of the companies want to do that, so they won't pay for it. They want to, you know, they will test against these other ones. But um, so that first of all, you know, you've got to think it must be doing something else bad to the body Otherwise, you know, you'd get some benefit of, of these uh, free, you know, zero calories or virtually zero. And so that's where these chemicals, which all act differently. So it is hard to, they don't all work in the same way. And it could be that some people react with one and not the other, but they do interfere with your gut microbes because most of them are de derived from uh, petroleum and various other bits of carbon and industrial processes. 
they're not something that are, uh, with the exception of stevia, are actually in plants. Mm. Um, and even the, the stevia we drink isn't, uh, is only produced in, as a small fraction of, of, by plants. So we, we think that they're interfering with the gut microbes. The gut microbes can't break them down. And like, it's just like hitting this, I don't know, like trying to swallow ball bearings or uh, something alien, some crystal that your body's never seen before, in, you know, despite millions of years of evolution, and sends off some other signals to the body that maybe increase inflammation or send increased appetite signals because of the sweetness um, or do other things uh, that are not neutral. And there is evidence they do reduce the diversity of your gut microbes as well. Mm, mm. So uh, I think generally it's a chemical that your microbes are not used to and maybe doing us some harm. Uh, and so I, I do worry that we're switching from one uh, evil to another. Uh, and this is sanctioned by the government with the sugar levy that without really proper studies and, uh, you know, it is amazing we're not doing really large-scale studies of this. Uh, if, it, if it was a pharmaceutical, we'd have spent a billion pounds on this already to see if it was safe. But we introduce new chemicals in food all the time with very little uh, in the way of safety checks and, and no long-term uh, follow-ups or anything. There's a couple of things there that you mentioned that I really want to pick up on. Um, one in that despite the low calorie or the lower calorie content of the diet, um, sweetened beverages, there wasn't any difference in weight loss. And the second is how do we approach new artificial sweeteners that are invariably going to come onto the market in the future that may be shown to have uh, lesser effects on um blood glucose as there is a uh, there is a new one on the market i think that's been added to a sugar cereal that's been shown to have lower uh, impacts on, on sugar levels and thus being marketed as a healthier alternative to sugar how should we approach artificial sweetness should we use the parad- the um uh, guilty until proven otherwise uh, sort of approach or are there reasonable things that we can do to introduce it safely into the food system before no I mean, I'm not I'm not against them per se, and it could be that these new formulations of stevia, for example, which they've grown. Stevia was introduced a, a bit too early, and about one in four people got a really bitter taste with it, so they had to um, uh, reformulate it and grow up the different form of it, uh, uh, chemical form, which is grown in vats by microbes actually making it. Ironically, um, so. Uh, they're producing this special form of stevia that doesn't have the metallic taste because uh, they couldn't grow enough of it to be, you know, each can would cost about £10. Um, so that's that. it's possible that has less effect on the body and I'm not against that. But what I'd like to see is that someone's actually done in the same way if you introduced a new drug uh, that affected the gut, um, that... Uh, you demonstrated it that, uh, you know, in 100 people followed for a year, um, mm. there were no real abnormalities shown and that it was fine. So I just think we need to, you know, I'm not against food innovation at all, um, mm. but I, I think the fact we virtually have, haven't changed the way we test foods and chemicals in 50 years, we just stick it into rats and see if they get liver cancer. You know, that's basically it. 
in massive doses and it's like so so outdated you know we have the microbiome we have fabulous genetic sequencing now we can see exactly what's going on so they should prove it safe not ask us after the event people like myself uh you know with no funds to try and raise the money to try and uh prove them wrong and that's yeah that's where this whole field has got out of out of sync and then you know and the food industry will uh commission papers uh questioning research like our, we've done or others other groups like the israeli group of the weizmann um just sowing seeds of doubt because the studies ideally are you know should be bigger and and more powered as if it's you know the onus should be on us to prove without any doubt that they're dangerous rather than uh these companies uh, doing it the other way around so that's what needs to change yeah I, I totally agree i think you know before you essentially run experiments on a large public um on a large public scale you know we need to have reasonable evidence to suggest that they are safe and they're not going to have downstream effects that we only realize a year or two into um after you know it's been introduced um you mentioned calories there and you've done a whole chapter on calories and the myth that uh calories in is sort of the be all end all and can accurately predict weight loss if you just control your your energy intake what are your overarching thoughts about that now uh i think it's a complete con um you know i'm not a calorie denier i i think they do exist right it's it's uh but you know if you burn food in a calorimeter, you will get heat and it will raise the temperature by you know, one degree. But, um, you know, as, as, a, as a tool that you can use for weight loss, it's ridiculously uh, overrated. Um, you know, speaking in the last 10 years to nutritionists, dietitians, uh, specialists in this field, they can't measure it accurately, right? So... Give them a week to say, okay, tell us how many calories you're intaking. Even then, you know, and you'd have to use scales for every single time you did it. And it's just impossible. So if you then rely on um, what's on the label, you're also running into other problems. Uh, tests show around 10% error on these labels, which is quite legal. And some foods have up to 20% error on it. So Traditionally, we've you know uh, we under we overestimate the calories in nuts by twenty percent, mm. and also we treat the calories the same, uh, you know whether it's the whole nut or whether it's ground nuts or whether it's whole chickpeas or it's hummus, uh, and of course the food matrix is absolutely crucial to what changes. Then it gets even worse because you know we've now got this legislation about restaurants and fast foods showing the labels. In America, they've been doing this for the last five years. Uh, hasn't really changed uh, the waistline of Americans, uh, but they have shown that how the portion size is so variable that it makes a nonsense of that uh, calorie estimate. So, uh, in measuring it in, and also, you know, why do we have two thousand calories for women and two thousand five hundred for men? You know, who? Who is Mr. and Mrs. Average? And, you know, where do they live? What, what? Uh, and so 
you know, I tested myself on a metabolic chamber and, you know, if I was eating 2,500 calories, um, you know, according to me, you know, I, I'd have to be doing about 900, burning off 900 calories of exercise every day to, to stay stable. So it, it, it's a nonsense. And we've shown that many now experiments have shown that if you give identical calorie meals, um, <clears throat> one of fat, one of carbs, you'll get a different result. Um, you know, people process them differently. And this all comes back to this individuality that nobody is average. So, yeah. um, but so my, ma- my main problem with it is, you know, yeah, I, I can see there are some, you know, there's companies formed on it and there's many practitioners doing it and Weight Watchers is, you know, you're fighting a billion dollar industry who love the calorie. Plus you've got all the food manufacturers who love to put low calorie on the packet. Uh, and when people see that, that's all they see. They don't see the other 30 ingredients, uh, the nasty stuff that, you know, has been added to improve the, the feel of it. Uh, and, and it also gives people, you know, license to potentially eat more. As several studies have shown, they will eat more of it. You know, this is a low-fat, low-cal snack. Oh, I can have twice yeah. as much. Um, it, it doesn't fill you up as much, you know. Um, so that input side is really bugs me. But of course, that's even less compared to the outside, the other side of the equation. How much do we all burn? We all burn hugely different amounts, and it's really difficult to measure precisely. So we've got no idea what the input should be because you know the output is so different, and we know that the, and the whole equation calories in equals calories out is biased because that assumes they are independent you know any equation uh really means that the two sides are independent of each other and if and but if they're interrelated so that um you burn more calories with exercise for example um you know that has a feedback loop to to reduce your output um you'll slow down your metabolism and so the whole thing yeah you know, and I think we have to knock that on the head first because everything else then falls over after it. This sort of dumbing down food into one magic number. Oh, you know, do you realize a croissant has, you know, 210 calories? Well, you know, why don't you have this, uh, you know, ready meal that only has 199 or something, you know, and yeah, um, yeah. avocado, you know, deadly, you know, because it's... Um, it's uh, got, you know, calorie-dense fats in it. Um, it's so outdated. It's so, you know, it's a 100-years-old concept that we just haven't managed to shake. And I think it yeah. completely deflects from the quality of the food argument. And, and that's what really we're trying to do now, and that's, you know, you know, trying to use our research to get people to lose weight healthily is really to get them to focus on different ways of eating and ignoring the calorie, the calorie count of the food. And I think we've got we've got some studies going in the US now, you know, with Zoe, and it it is showing to be successful. And we never never mentioned the calorie counts of the foods and things we're suggesting. Yeah, I I totally agree. I mean, this is part of the reason why whenever I've written cookbooks or whenever I post recipes online, I negate to include calorie counts because i don't feel that that's a good reflection on the quality of food because 
quite frankly, if people knew the calorie count of some of the food that I suggest, which has lots of good quality oils, nuts and seeds, it will far exceed what you'd find at something like a Weight Watchers or another diet um, uh, um, ready meal. Um, and I think it gives a full sense of security as well to the consumer that just because this is a low calorie option, this is one that I should choose. And like you said, it you know it, it doesn't give an indication of the overall diet quality. And some of the things that you suggest in the book about the uh, amylase producing enzymes, the le- length of digestion or your digestive tract, the absorption from food, the timing of ingestion, all these different things will have an impact on the intake of energy from what we consume. Yeah, no, I think you've got it right. You know, we should be judging food by seeing what's in it does it taste good? You know, is it the right time to eat it? You know, are you hungry? You know, um, and in a way, the last thing is, you know, it's calorie count because that's been so manipulated by mm. by the industry as well. Um, you know, uh, and most of us know the difference between, you know, a cake and a bit of spinach, you know, that there's more calories in one <laughs> or the other. Um, yeah. Uh, okay. I think it was initially helpful to show that some of these ready-made sandwiches and things, you know, had enormous amounts of calories in them that people didn't realize. Um, So I'm not saying it had no value when they first started being introduced, but people that just, just realized that anything you buy ready-made with some, you know, tasty sauce to make you eat more of it is likely if it's not uh, high calorie, it's likely to be high in various sweeteners and, um, and flavor enhancers. Um, to do Absolutely. the same, to do the same thing, and you know, you question whether you want that kind of food regularly. Yeah, and it, it also deflects responsibility from the food manufacturer uh, away from themselves, and just saying, well, to the consumer, it's because you didn't output, it's because you didn't expend enough energy by exercising. And I know exercise is another chapter in your book that you've talked about a lot. And uh, uh, rather than go through every single chapter in the book, I want everyone to to read Spoonfed because it's a fantastic read, and I think it really does set the scene of nutrition as it is today, explaining why we're in the current environment we are uh, and what things that we need to focus on going forward as well. Um, I wanted to talk about uh, pesticides. Uh, this is something I'm constantly asked about, and um, I mirror a lot of uh, the arguments that you made in the book. Uh, about the again pragmatic principle um but i i wonder what your thoughts are on pesticides and whether people should be choosing organic uh, and how you personally choose to eat as well yeah we did we did a small study in my department and uh, it was rather worrying because it did show that um uh healthy vegetarians had higher levels you know in their blood and their urine of pesticides interesting interesting okay uh, that, that, you know that wasn't something I was expecting um, I thought you know it would be people on I don't know junk food diets or whatever who'd, mm. who'd do this um, and it is very hard to uh, cut out pesticides from your life if you live in the UK or US or any sort of developed country uh, apart from there are some countries in Europe like Austria and Germany that um, do about a quarter of their produce is organic, but uh, here it's a small minority and it's more expensive, you know, and, and when you go out to eat, you can't always be sure that's what you're going to get. And you certainly can't get it in hospital canteens. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> no way. <laughs> so, yeah, so, um, so I, um, 
I try I, I try and buy organic uh, most of the time for my regular produce, but I, I don't go I don't freak out if I can't. Mm. Um, and sometimes, you know, if it's if it's four times the price, I do balk at it and say, well, I'll just uh, you know have some other good food as well that isn't you know hasn't got pesticides on it to counteract that. So um, I would only really be I'd be more worried if I. Uh, if I was female and pregnant, mm. I think uh, that's when I would pay more attention uh, more than I do at the moment. I would try and be a bit stricter, but I think otherwise, uh, you know, we've got to be pragmatic. You've got to enjoy food. It mustn't be fearful. And my view on pesticides is they're not a, they're not a good thing, but I don't think, you know, it's something that might occur gradually over 10, 20, 30 years. Um, otherwise, we would have noticed more problems earlier and it, it could be that just people in certain areas getting very high doses or doing gardening and forestry and the who are using the actual chemical are, are, are more at risk so um i think a pragmatic approach is there we should be so sort of lobbying to get rid of it when we can and, and everywhere have choice um washing the vegetables and then you've got this sort of dilemma about peeling or non-peeling um if you peel it, you lose a lot of the nutrients and fiber. And if you leave leave it on, um, you know, you might be getting more pesticide. But speaking to the pesticide experts, they say that actually it goes beneath the skin anyway. Oh, okay. Wow. So it doesn't totally protect you anyway. So um, that's, uh, that, you know, you can't really win. <laughs> so yeah. Uh, I, I know in the book you talked about some high profile cases where there've been some lawsuits that I believe are pending against um, some of the big agropetrol, uh, ag agrochemical uh, manufacturers um, for people who have very, very high levels of exposure. So like you said, people who are working with the chemicals and farming, etc. Um, what do we know about the potential risks to the average consumer of conventional produce? And do you think it's alarming enough for us to at least try to go organic where possible, but not freak out about it? Um, or do you not think the data is clear at this point? Well, so there's two separate things. There's, there are these anecdotes of uh, people who have developed uh, generally forms of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, which is a, a rare um, sort of leukemia type um, uh, disease. And, uh, and they've been associated but not absolutely nailed to uh, these people that used a lot of the sprays and several Californian courts. It's only in California that they award like $80, $80 million um, payouts. Uh, and, and there is a class action for several billion pending in California. But each time yeah. it just goes to uh, a higher court and so it might could take 10 years to resolve. Um, mm. But when we, people have looked and there isn't a sort of general a massive increase in cancers uh, in states that use a lot of the pesticides. So a lot of the epidemiology hasn't totally supported that. But there's a French study that did uh, look at uh, people over about 10 years who used a lot of organic foods and found they did have uh, generally less, less of these uh, leukemias and lymphomas, um, suggesting that, you know, they were being relatively protected. Um, but again, it's an observational epidemiology study. So it's, uh, you know, the evidence is, I would say, 
uh, weekly showing that there has potential cancer effects. But I, I would reassure people to say that these effects are likely to be small or rare. Um, and otherwise, we would have seen bigger signs in the data by now. Uh, but I think everything about it, when you look at the, you know, what it does to mice and what, you know, and the way the companies behaved in hiding the data, um, makes you suspect that um, you know you really don't want to be having it uh, a lot regularly uh, for 10, 20 years. Um, so, so I have a pragmatic approach. But if someone offers me a nice looking carrot. I don't refuse it if it's um, if it's not organic. Yeah, yeah. Just give it a good wash, eh? <laughs> um, I wanted to ask, uh, j- just to end, because I know we're, we're limited on time here, um, just a couple of practical suggestions. If you could sum up to the listeners of the key takeaway points that you want to uh, bestow upon readers and, and consumers of food, all of us uh, across the, the nation, what, 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 kind of practical tips would you give to uh to to people today to better look after their health going forward i guess first realize that we're all unique and i think that's the sort of underlying message of the book really is that um if you realize that you know what works for someone else what diet works for someone else or what allergy or intolerance someone else has doesn't mean you've got you've got the same one so you've got to discover things for yourself uh which means you need to experiment more. You know, we're all in ruts, partly from our culture, partly from our work, uh, and a lot from uh, advertising and sort of brainwashing. Um, so try and get out of your rut, always have some different food. Um, as a general principle, while we're waiting for personalized nutrition to come in, and as I said, you know, we will have an app uh, by Zoe in, the, in sometime in the new year in the UK, but it's going to be expensive. It's, you know, uh, it, it's going to be a bit of work to do. Until then, the best way of eating is to think for your, what would your gut like to eat? What would your gut, what do your microbes want for dinner? You know, that's, if you think like that, you really can't go very far wrong. And that means having 30, 30 different plants uh, a week, so you bring in lots of diversity and a plant can be a nut and a seed and a herb. You know, it's not not the traditional uh, old fashioned view of what a plant is. Um, and, and if you do that, you can doesn't really matter whether you have bits of meat or bits of fish or whatever. Um, avoid ultra processed foods on a regular basis, but I'm not against anyone having uh, the odd uh, binge or treat. Um, Avoid artificial sweeteners because uh, they uh, are really a fool's gold and they are, are not good for you. Um, I would um, try and ignore f- food labels. So I think that's one thing that we learned here is that um, the label is there to make you buy it and ignore what else is on the packet. And so... Yeah. Look at them in a new light when you when you next go shopping, uh, you know, and try and um, buy things with fewer ingredients that, and realize what ultra processed food is. We all eat processed food all the time. It's yeah. this ultra processed food at the other end of that spectrum that may be plastered with healthy stickers like breakfast cereals, etc. Um, but I want people to also experiment with how they eat, not just what they eat. So I think there's this 
really big science now about um, time-restricted feeding and uh, intermittent fasting and skipping breakfast or dinner, going down to two meal events a day rather than currently five or six, which is what the average Briton does. Uh, try these things out. See what really suits you. And I think you'll be pleasantly surprised uh, about what you can do if you just take away some of this convention uh, and everyone get out there and be their own citizen scientist. Yeah, I, I think those are amazing tips. And I think we all need to run some more experiments. I've I've uh, experimented myself with time-restricted feeding and doing gentle fasts. Like an example of what I do is if there's nothing in my fridge for breakfast, I just say to myself, well, um, I'll just wait until lunch and uh, I won't stress out about it. Um, so I think, you know, running these different, uh, unique sort of insights into how your body reacts and stuff is something you all need to be a little bit more comfortable with. And I think you mentioned it a couple of times now that the Zoe app and personalization that for me is super exciting. Um, uh, I know the predict Two study, I think, uh, came out earlier this year in nature, um, and the premise of unique insights into how we should all be eating that I think is super exciting for nutritional science and that will revolutionize the field. If you could sort of look in in the future, five years down the line, how do you think uh, nutrition will evolve on a one-to-one basis and, and do you think it will be uh, accessible to the average consumer? I see this as a, a bottom-up approach rather than top-down. I can't see uh, the government changing their relationship with the food industry. Mm-hmm. Um Obviously, most of us would have liked an extension of the sugar levy to junk foods and and making fruits and vegetables cheaper. But it's not going to happen with this government or probably the next. Um, So I think, you know, we we hopefully will see a a ground swell of of movement that's going to really show the importance of food and try to educate, uh, get get food back on the, the education agenda, you know, just as you've done for doctors, but, you know, it should be done at nursery school. Um, uh, you know, kids should be playing with, you know, 20 different vegetables and, uh, you know, rather than some plastic toys. Uh, yeah. so, so so that as a nation, you know, we come from this group of real food dummies uh, compared to others, other countries, uh, and we've become really much more intelligent in knowing about the food. Uh, mm-hmm. And in that way, we'll, you know, we will start to reject uh, this cheap uh, rubbish that we're being fed and, you know, all be able to, to cook a meal as we leave school. And I think that's, that's, really, that's really a crucial uh, part of this. And, and realising that, you know, a lot of these doctrines and, and, and things like you were talking about the breakfast, you know, there's so much pressure on people to say, you must eat breakfast. Uh, you know, if there's nothing in your fridge, you've got to go out and get something. You know, no, you don't. Um, I spent, you know, a week with the Hadza tribe in Tanzania. They don't even have a word for breakfast. You know, they don't have a fridge. So it didn't occur to them or all of our ancestors that we had to nip out to the nearest, uh, you know, 7-Eleven to, to get something to eat. Otherwise, we'd faint and fall over. You know, just I think it's really important that people realise that there, there is this, no such thing as, you know, really normal patterns of eating. But let's eat less. You know, let's enjoy it more. And, you know, uh, eat more intelligently. I think that's, that's really important. And find the best time to eat for you. I did this test in, in the Predict, and it turned out that I metabolize my muffins 
um, better in the evening than in the morning, which is unlike most people. Whereas, mm. So most people, it's the other way around. But again, one in four people are going to be the opposite. And you won't know until you start experimenting. Um, and so it suits me, you know, like you a couple of times a week to to skip breakfast, although I enjoy breakfast. So, you know. Yeah, yeah, me too. <laughs> I love my breakfast. But it's, uh, you know, yes, if, if you don't have the, an option of a delicious one, it's nice to you know, just go without rather than having one just because you feel guilty because your mother told you to have breakfast. You know, that that's... <laughs> That's where I think we need to change people's mentality and uh, uh, and just get everyone you know much more intelligent about knowing about food, where it comes from, all the uh, all the tricks and cons, you know, particularly you know, and there isn't one right way to do everything. It's um, you know labeling people as, as vegans or vegetarians or uh, gluten frees or you know fasters or non fasters. You know, we should be able to change religions uh, every day. <laughs> feel comfortable about it and not feel guilty you know uh to to change our minds and have to stick to things i think that's that's really important so being flexible in what you're eating is is also but you know the point of eating is also to be you know is to enjoy it and i think we mustn't uh lose sight of that and get too obsessed uh and so i hope i haven't put anyone off eating uh and and enjoy food even more with plenty of uh good salt and fat in it um yeah if it tastes yeah. good <laughs> no I'm, I'm sure you haven't put anyone off especially me i'm thinking about my lunch now um tim that that was brilliant i mean i could have talked to you about a whole bunch of other things like you know mood and food and um breakfast in a bit more detail but i, I think you know th- those are some amazing salient points from from the book and you can always chat again absolutely yeah i'd love to i'd love to tim and then and hopefully i can actually cook for you as well um which i'd, I'd love to do at some point in the future Look forward to it. I really enjoyed this podcast episode with Professor Tim. I hope you enjoyed it too. Just to give you a summary as to what we talked about with regards to food and how to lead a healthier, more informed life recognize that we are all unique yes there are a few things that will definitely be pretty much universal across the board that is largely plants largely whole foods making sure that you're getting good quality fats eating plenty of different types of fiber and diversity some of the principles that map perfectly onto what we do in the doctor's kitchen and all the books that i've uh, written run experiments like i said i've experimented with doing gentle fasting i tend to eat in a 10 to 11 hour window again both of which i've talked about in both of my books be aware and be skeptical of product labels and that includes one that are actually generated by the uh, government guidelines as well again controversial subject i think they can create a lot more confusion than clarity there are lots of reasons why you should be having at least 30 different plants a week and i think one of the things that i want to pick up on there that uh professor tim mentioned was nuts seeds and herbs are also included in that differential of different plants that we should be consuming something that's very important and something that gets overlooked by just the focus on fruit and veggies alone avoid ultra processed foods it goes without saying if you're an avid listener to the doctor's kitchen please do avoid them that isn't to say that you should never have them but they should not be a staple in your diet 
and artificially sweet sweetened beverages things like the diet drinks uh, or the low calorie versions of said drinks they are fool's gold to quote professor tim himself and i agree looking at the research you know there is a lot that a we don't know and i think i take a pragmatic principle as does professor tim in that we should be avoiding them until they're proven to be safe i really hope you enjoyed this podcast episode please do give us a five star review if you enjoyed it share it with your family members if they if you feel that they need to listen to this information and i will catch you here next week planning for your next trip Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.